Or if you have your Bibles, please open to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. And it is my, it is with great joy I share with you that we'll be finishing our study in this epistle today. We are done with 2 Timothy. And I should have looked it up, but we began the study many, many years ago when my hair was all black and I was like several pounds lighter. But, you know, better late than never. Uh, we finished, we're finishing this story, uh, this, this epistle, uh, and we are rejoicing in Christ together. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. Now, um, let me read, let's, let's read verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Croaz. At Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my present defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the house of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. In one of uh, R.C. Sproul's sermons, he recounts his first visit to the city of Rome many years ago. Uh, he went with a group from his church, and they had a professional guide uh, lead them to the historical sites in that city. Uh, the, this professional guide took them to uh, the Roman Colosseum, uh, the ancient Rome's huge amphitheater, which uh, sat over 50,000 people in the audience. Also took him to the Pantheon, the temple of all the gods, which was built uh, in 100 AD. Tour guide also led them to the Great Forum, uh, a huge complex. It was a ceremonial, legal, social, and the business center of ancient Rome. The last place they went to, uh, Sproul said, was the highlight. This last place they visited was uh, the most heart-stirring, most uh, beautiful and, uh, and moving place for him. They went across the street from the ancient forum, and they went below the streets of the city. To, uh, and they came to uh, a, a large hole in the ground, among many holes in the ground, 15 feet wide and 15 feet deep. Um, and when Sproul stood there, uh, he said he nearly wept, beholding this, this place. Now, why would a hole in the ground elicit such a response from Sproul? Because he was standing at the Mamertine prison in Rome near the Forum. 
This was where they kept their prisoners awaiting execution. This was where Paul was imprisoned, where Paul was bound with chains as a criminal. And this was where Paul wrote 2 Timothy, where Paul gave his life as a drink offering to God. I want you to picture our dear friend, the apostle of Christ, the Gentiles. He is aged and frail, and he is cold and wet in this dark dungeon, this hole in the ground. Somehow he was able to acquire a writing instrument and some parchment, and he is in that dark hole in the ground, scribbling together and writing a letter, and that letter is Second Timothy. It is his final memoir of his life and ministry, and in it, he pours out his heart. He shares with Timothy and shares with us what is most weighing upon on his heart. And we have a special privilege this morning, uh, particularly through this letter and through this passage before us, we get a glimpse of ministry from an inside-out perspective. We get to see ministry from Paul's perspective, from a pastor's perspective. Now, most of you have a perspective of ministry from the outside in. You see us on Sundays, you see us, you see me at events, you know, you see me at retreats, and from that you get a picture of what life and ministry must look like. But from this passage, we, uh, we get the pastor's perspective. We get to see church and life and ministry from Paul's angle, from Paul's perspective, from Paul's eyes. What do we find? What we find is what is true for all ministers of Christ. We find that there is one thing that is a source of much joy for pastors. There is one thing that brings a pastor just delight and praise and rejoicing. But also we find that same thing brings a pastor sorrow, grief, pain, and disappointment. What is this one thing? It is the church. It is you. <laughs> Sorry. Apologize. <laughs> you bring pastors indescribable joy. Same time, you, I'm sorry, bring <laughs> pastors indescribable sorrow and pain. That's what is in Paul's heart, and that's what is in pastor's hearts. Very broadly, what do you find when you look into a pastor's heart? You'll find two general categories, Jesus and people. Jesus and, what are we thinking about all the time? Jesus and people. You were to, if you were to listen in on Pastor Dan and I, our conversation, you would hear us talking either about Jesus, you know, broadly. With, talking, hear us talking about texts of scripture. Hear us talking about Calvinism. You're talking, talking about Saint Pelagianism or eschatology or pneumatology or Christology. You're here us talking about scripture, or theology, or doctrine. Or you're here us talking or thinking or praying about people, fellow leaders, fellow ministers, people in the church. Right? That's that consumes our life. It's true for every spiritual leader, every, every caregiver leader, minister in the church, but because this is our full-time uh, vocation, this describes, this sums up our lives. This past Monday, uh, I was power washing my fence. You know, uh, we want an older home, and it's just black all around. So I read online, 
rent a power washer from Home Depot for 75 days for 24 hours. You power wash this thing 25 PSI, and it'll make it almost good as new. And you know what? That website was true. <laughs> it's amazing what the power washer can do. So for seven hours, I was out there, 30-minute break, eating a Chick-fil-A free sandwich from <laughs> this week, right? My, my wife is, you know, a frugal woman, so a free sandwich. So without a 30-minute break, I'm out there power washing, and it's like a total body workout. I don't have to work out for the whole week because of seven hours. With that seven hours, what am I thinking about? I'm thinking about Jesus and about you, right, for seven hours. And for a little bit, I was thinking about LeBron James and where he's going to go. <laughs> for a little bit, you know. But outside of that, I'm thinking about Jesus. <laughs> and I'm thinking about you and praying for you. I really am. You think you're a member of Cornerstone. You don't think we think about you and pray for you. Oh, I wish you knew how much you're on our hearts, how much we think and pray for you. And uh, I hope that this passage will be a reminder of that because Paul is days, weeks from his death. And who is he thinking about? He's thinking about people in his life, people in, in the church. In 14 verses, he mentions 17 names. 14 verses. Last 14 verses, sentences of his life. And what does he mention? He mentions people, fellow Christians, who are serving the Lord, who have been part of his life and ministry. These 17 people can be put into five categories, right? classified into five general categories. The first category of people, 14 of the 17 will fit into this category. The first category are faithful servants of Christ. Right? Servant Christians who love Christ and therefore serve Him. And they have Christ's interest in mind. And little or no regard for themselves. 13 out of 17. I think this is a fairly accurate percentage. I know that People think the church is full of hypocrites, unfaithful, half-hearted people who are at best marginally committed to Christ. That churches are full of false Christians who are flakes and have no real love for Jesus Christ. No, and it's true church of Jesus Christ. I think this, this percentage is a reality. You know, the, those who shipwreck their faith make a lot of noise, garner a lot of attention. And a rotten apple spoils the barrel. So they, it seems that way. But in reality, in a true church, you will find that a vast majority are true Christians who love the Lord and therefore are serving Him faithfully in season and out of season. And for Paul, a vast majority of the names that he mentions are such men and women. He understood that ministry is team ministry. That he's one part of a team. He's not a lone ranger. He's not the one doing all the work. He's one person among many who are serving Christ. And together, they're advancing the gospel. I mean, a few names, and I'm not going to go through all 14, right? A few names just uh, that, that jumps out at us is even in Crescens. He's the, the only time he's ever mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, Paul mentions him because he has gone to Galatia to serve Christ. He's named with Titus. Titus from the Dalmatia. We know Titus. He's a son of the faith, a fellow minister, a fellow preacher, teacher, pastor, and elder. So likewise, Titus to Dalmatia. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Later on, verse 19, he mentions Prisca and Aquila. And so if you're a student of the Bible, you, you recognize these names. This husband and wife team. Right? Power team. Right? They both love the Lord. And they both love serving Christ. 
mean, that is joy. I rejoice that my wife can serve with me in ministry. There's nothing like it in the world where both of you are serving. They were tent makers just like Paul. And they heard the gospel, they were saved, and they devoted their lives for Christ. Paul calls them co-workers, fellow workers in Christ. In fact, in Romans 16, 3 and 4, Paul tells, speaks of them, they're not just fellow workers, they risked their lives for me. They risked their lives for Christ. They put their lives on the line for the cause of Christ. They weren't mere spectators. They weren't just contributors to the uh, work of the, of, of the gospel. No, they were all in. They placed themselves in the front line at their own peril for, for Christ. And he mentions, verse 19, he, he greets the household of Onesiphorus. Now, that's, that's very interesting. Right? He says, greet not Onesiphorus, but the house of Onesiphorus. Uh, who is Onesiphorus? If you're here many years ago, we studied chapter 1, verse 16 through 18, where Onesiphorus was his Christian minister who went to Rome to search for Paul. It, wasn't, it was hard to find Paul because he was thrown in a dungeon middle of in the Mamertine prison and so he had to search for him earnestly. And when he found Paul as a convicted criminal right, who was, who was, who was charged with either treason or atheism, uh, if, if convicted it would be, it'd be uh, death, he was not ashamed of Paul's chains. He openly identified with Paul and he went to Paul and refreshed him. He risked his own life to identify himself with Paul and minister to Paul. So Paul, writing this letter to Timothy, he, and the Onesiphorus is from Ephesus, he says, greet the house of Onesiphorus. Why? Because when any man who's got a family serves Christ, he's not the only one who's making a sacrifice. His family is making a sacrifice. I ask any pastor, ask any care group leader, ask their wives what ministry means to them. Ask their children what ministry to, means to them. If you're married and you have children, oftentimes the greater sacrifice is made by members of the family. When they're giving themselves to the Lord, it's the wife and children who are also sacrificing. So Paul makes a note to greet the household because they have sacrificed greatly in sending Onesiphorus to minister to Paul himself. The final one that I want to highlight to you is Timothy. This letter is addressed to his son in the faith. He called him early on, my true child in the faith. In his second letter, it called him my beloved son. Paul was not married, he had no children, to Paul, Timothy was family. He had no other earthly friend who was more dear to him. He had no other co-worker who was more dependable than Timothy. Timothy not just did not only share Paul's theology, did not share Paul's life, but he shared Paul's heart, heart for Christ and heart for Christ's church and heart for the message of the gospel. This is why Timothy was Paul's right-hand man in Philippians 2. He says, oh, Timothy, I mean, what, what, a, what an example to us. Paul says, I have no one else like him who takes a generous, genuine interest for your welfare and the interest of Christ. Everyone else 
They are looking out for their own interests. They're concerned for themselves. They got an angle, and the angle's all about where they fit in, what it means to them. But not Timothy, he's like me. He considers his life worth nothing if only he may finish the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Therefore, Paul loved Timothy because he was a faithful servant of Christ and not for a limited period of time, but his whole lifetime. It's a joy to consider faithful believers, faithful servants in Christ, and that is my joy. I, I am surrounded by faithful servants in Christ. This church is filled with servants of Christ who've labored in season and out of season in tremendous ways for the cause of Christ. They're examples to me. They inspire me. Their family members inspire my wife to see how they love the Lord. They joyfully serve with their husbands for the work of building up Christ's church and proclaiming the gospel throughout the world. We have people in this church that have served with me over 20 years. That's crazy. Over 20 years. That was definitely when my hair was jet black and I was maybe 20, 30 pounds lighter. They have pictures to prove it. Right? And it's amazing. Like, I emailed a sister that I've known over 20 years, and I, asked, I needed her to do a favor for me in ministry to, to do some errands. And her response, yeah, James, right? consider it done. Right? Um, this is uh, really the majority of, of true Christianity. is filled with faithful servants, and it's the majority of Christ's church here at Cornerstone. Second category are, and I would, I would put myself in this category, uh, late bloomers, right? Late, I'm a late bloomer in ministry. Men and women who began the race stumbling. <laughs> right? They overslept, right? They, they missed the bus. Right? They got a late start. Right? A lot of the flesh, a lot of the sins, a lot of the old habits die a hard death. So in the Christian life, they made a lot of mistakes in the beginning, but they didn't quit. By grace of God, right, they persevered. They held firm to that which Christ called them, and they continue, and they finish well. Second category. Right? And so maybe you are in this category. You're like, maybe you're paralyzed to serve Christ. You're paralyzed to take risks with faith. You're, you're, you're hesitant to really step up and, and take that next step in maturity and ministry because you blew it so greatly early years as a Christian. Well, may you take heart by this example. Right? This guy blew it so bad, it's in the Bible. Right? That's pretty bad, right? If you want to mess up, don't mess up where they put it in the Bible. Right? This guy's mistake is in the Bible, and you know what happened? Because of him, the first ministry split occurred. He caused the first split. You know all the, all the church splits that occurred for 2,000 years of church history? Where did it began, begin? It be, began with this guy. This guy is the flashpoint of the first church split. Who is this? Verse 11, get Mark. Who is Mark? It's John Mark. Right? We first hear of him in Acts 13. His parents were believers. He had a church that was meeting in his house in Jerusalem. And this guy, there was something about him. Young, but vibrant. Right? dynamic, mature, fervent. He had spiritual zeal and fervency. Huge potential for ministry. So much so, when Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13 set out to do their first missionary journey, 
their agreement, their consensus is, let's take Mark. He's got potential. He can be the one we transition to, right? It's like Phil Jackson and Brian Shaw, right? Transitions are important for any organization, like a sports team. When, when, when a guy's getting old, we need someone to take over and, and take it to another level. John Mark is the guy who we could pass the baton to. When Barnabas, you're really old. I'm not as old as you, as you, Barnabas. But when we are gone, he can be that guy. So they take him along to their first missionary journey. And they arrive at Perga and Pamphylia and Acts 13. And what happens? Man, John Mark, he, 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 he was used to ministry in the church, not ministry in the world. He was used to Bible study with Christians, not preaching the gospel to unbelievers. And when persecution began, when, opposite, when he experienced opposition and the stones flying, oh, he, his motivation was revealed and he deserted them. He went home. He got scared, right? He got scared. He was anxious for himself. He was homesick. And in spite the the persistent uh, pleading by Paul and Barnabas, John Mark left, abandoned them, right? Hightailed at home. So here they are, Paul and Barnabas, in the front lines, risking their lives for Christ. And they're in the foxhole, and they think John Mark's got their back, and they turn around, and John Mark's gone home, right? They're vulnerable. How dejected and discouraged they must have been. And not only that, this news spread out to all, all churches, right? Well, in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas decide to, uh, to revisit the churches that they had planted and to even go further with the gospel in Asia Minor. In, in that meantime, between the first and second missionary, John Mark re- confessed, he repented. God uses trial as a, refi- a source of, re- of being refined and purified of his heart, his motivation. He, in fact... I believe around this time, spend time with Peter, 1 Peter 5.13, where Peter mentions Mark uh, as his fellow worker. And so I'm sure, I, I got to think, Mark heard from Peter what happened to him, how Peter was a poor starter. He was a late bloomer. How he blew it big time early on in ministry where Christ was being persecuted, tortured, and crucified. What did Peter do? He denied him three times. Peter ran Peter fled. Peter cowered before a servant girl and how Christ restored him. I got to think Mark heard that story and gave him hope, caused him to endure and really established himself, proved himself as a faithful servant of Christ. And so when he heard that Paul and Barnabas were going again, he went to his uncle, Barnabas, son of encouragement. And, and that was his nickname, son of encouragement. Right? So I looked at Barnabas as his... You know, generous guy, this big guy, big-hearted guy, big smile. And a guy that's always giving two-hand hugs, right, to, to fellow men. You know, a guy who bakes cookies for one another, writes encouragement notes. This, this great uncle guy, right, Barnabas, says, I want to go. I want to serve. I want to, I, I know I messed up the first time, but I want another. Shout out the title. Let me, let me get in the batter's box once again. So Barnabas goes to Paul and says, Paul, this young man, we were all young ones. He, he failed. He messed up. But consider the grace of Christ. Let's give him another opportunity. If we don't, this might mark him for his whole life. right? If we don't allow him to minister with us, he might despair for the rest of his career as a minister. And Paul's response was, look, I love Mark, dear brother, but the mission field is not a place to make disciples or to become a disciple. 
Mission, missions work is a place for proven, proven missionaries, proven leaders. Uh, uh, we're out there. We're getting persecuted left and right, right. It's not a controlled environment. We can't take an unproven man into the battlefield. I can't entrust myself to this guy who's shown his unfaithfulness. I, I, I will not take him. Their division became so sharp. What happened? They went their separate ways. Barnabas took Mark, and Paul took Titus in their missionary journey and went their separate ways. But Mark, late bloomer, messed up big time, didn't let this uh, hinder him, continued to entrust himself to Christ, continued to rely upon the Lord, and he proved himself as a faithful servant of Christ. Did not allow his past to define him. He's defined by Christ. And he persevered in the ministry. And in Colossians 4, about seven years before 2 Timothy, Paul writes of Mark as a fellow worker of Christ. And here in 2 Timothy 4, what does Paul say? When you come, bring Mark with you because he is very useful to me in the ministry. What a beautiful, what a great example for all of us. Thirdly, third category is uh, what I would call July 4th Christians. July 4th Christians. They're fireworks Christians. They make a lot of noise. They're flashy. They garner a lot of attention. But they're short-lived. They have no endurance. They have no perseverance. They're here today and gone today, right? They don't even stay overnight, right? They're, they're here today, and they don't thank you for the food, and they just leave, right? Or they're Sandyland Christians, right? They build a big house, right? Great trim, right? Beautiful decoration, great stucco and paint job, right? And everyone sees what is done, but when the wind and storm comes, a loud crash, because it was built not on the foundation of Christ, built on Sandyland. Who fits here? It's this man named Demas. Demas is first mentioned by Paul in Colossians. He's mentioned along with Luke and Epaphras. Luke, Epaphras were preachers, teachers, church leaders. He is mentioned in that list. In Philemon 1.24, Paul greeted, uh, greeted them and, and on behalf of Demas and called them one of his fellow workers. So no doubt, Paul invested much time and effort to Demas and considered him a co-laborer in ministry. So here, Demas, he made the varsity team. He made the pros, right? He is mentioned, he's part of Paul's team of leaders. And yet, what did he do? He loved this present world. In love with this present world, verse 10, he has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He didn't go to Thessalonica because Paul sent him. He didn't go because there's a church in need of ministry. He went because he loved this present world. And the world in the scripture is uh, embodiment of all that's evil and sinful in this world. Right? 1 John 2, 14, 15, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Right? It is Romans 12, to do not conform to this world. It is First John, the world and its desires are passing away. When Paul was at his greatest need, 
What did Demas do? He abandoned, literally deserted Paul, left Paul. There are a few such people. We've all seen such people in our lives. As Christians, after our first few years, we be, we we realize it's not Christianity is not fun and games. It's not like Disneyland. It is reality. Sin is in our flesh. Sin is a reality. Temptations are real, and we know, and we've heard and know of people who are once these flashy leaders, and they have publicly shipwrecked their faith, denied the Lord, and went away. Paul remembers Demas, source of much sorrow in his heart. Fourth category are people who are stubborn, stubbornly uh, opposed to Christ. They're hardened enemies of Christ. Right? They're not just uh, mildly resistant to the gospel. They reject it and they hate Jesus so much they hate Christians. And they are there to persecute. They're there to hurt. Right? They're, they're there to oppose the message by opposing the messengers and inflicting pain upon messengers of Jesus Christ. And so he mentions Alexander the coppersmith. Now he had mentioned Alexander and Hymenaeus in 1 Timothy. Uh, he had given them over to Satan because they're preaching false theology. Uh, he, he has excommunicated them. Now, I think it's not the same Alexander, common name uh, at that time as it is today. And second, Paul mentions him as a coppersmith. Right? Almost like saying this, a different Alexander, a coppersmith, uh, uh, strongly opposed our message and did me great harm. Now, Paul, I mean, he had a high threshold for pain. Paul experienced great amount of persecution and physical uh, persecution throughout his life and ministry. For Paul to say that someone caused him great harm, the harm that was caused must have been quite significant for Paul to have mentioned this. Paul understands this man is uh, not to be reasoned with. This man is beyond reasoning with. Uh, this man has one agenda. So he warns Timothy, be aware of him yourself. Take care, right? For this man is stubbornly opposed to the gospel, and his sole agenda is to inflict pain on the messengers of Christ. Paul knows. Paul experienced this firsthand in the sense where he was once such a man. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, a man of hubris, whose intent was not just to arrest Christians, hurt Christians, but murder Christians. So he's not saying they're beyond hope, but he's telling Timothy, don't be, don't be naive. There are people that are out to hurt you. Be wary of them. The final category might be a surprise, surprising one. Uh, people who love Jesus, but don't think of pastors. People who love Christ, faithful servants, but they don't care about pastors, care about their spiritual leaders. Here is Paul. He is thinking about people. His heart is filled with concern and love and prayers for people. 
But these very people are not thinking about Paul. They're not thinking about Paul. And um, this is not your fault, but this is all of us. I didn't think about pastors at all until I became a pastor. <laughs> and I realized, man, I should have thought of pastors a little bit more. I should have been more thoughtful towards them, right? You know, I, I, going on, I thought pastors weren't human beings. Right? They, didn't, they don't have feelings. They don't have concerns. They want a charm life. All they do is just share their quiet time and just extend it for an hour <laughs> to the same thing over and over again for an hour. And that's their job. What a charm life. They don't have a real life. Right? That's, that's most, if not all of us. Well, Paul experienced this firsthand. Verse 16, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Here is Paul. He's on trial for his life. Right? He's being charged with either insurrection or atheism. Right, treason against the Roman government, and his life is on the line, and he spent his whole life, and he has led thousands of people to Christ, to salvation. He's planted hundreds of churches, and he's inspired texts that they are reading, that they are growing up in the Christian faith. And so his life is at stake, he's on trial, and who shows up? No one comes to stand by him. No one comes to trial to be there as a character witness. No one comes to stand on Paul's side to support Paul and encourage Paul. Not a single person comes to, comes to trial to stand in the corner and pray for Paul. He is all by himself. They have, in his words, deserted him, abandoned him. He is old. His life is coming to an end. He's a has-been. They're just concerned for themselves. He's all by himself. He is by himself, just like Jesus was by himself. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, sitting on a donkey, they put palm leaves and said, Hosanna, Hosanna, which in Hebrew is, save us now. Save us now. Seven days later, the very same crowd are crying out, crucify him, crucify him. We don't want Jesus. We want Caesar. And in Gethsemane, his disciples all fled, all deserted him. Remember, there was a disciple. Right? The temple guard grabbed his cloak. He ran away naked. He couldn't get away from Jesus fast enough. While Paul was following Christ, so he was all alone at this trial. People had soured on Paul. They, were des- they had deserted Paul. What is Paul's response? I'm sure Paul was greatly disappointed, but his response was like Jesus when Jesus said, forgive them for they don't know what they, they, don't know what they do on the cross. His response was like Stephen when he was martyred, the first Christian martyr in Acts chapter 8. He said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Paul's response is to believe, may it not be charged against them. Father, my prayer is don't hold it against them for deserting me. And then he says in verse 17, what's what's most important? But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Everyone deserted me, but the Lord stood next to me and he strengthened me. The Lord kept his promise where he said in Hebrews 13, never, ever, ever, three strong negations in the Greek, never, ever, ever will I leave you. 
Never, ever, ever will I forsake you. I will be with you, Matthew 28, to the close of the age. Everyone had failed him, but Jesus stood by him. And Jesus himself strengthened him. And Jesus' standing shows his risen power, authority, and might. He is not a slain lamb anymore. He is standing in it with power and strength. And Jesus' standing shows his love and care and concern for Paul. Jesus stood by him and strengthened him. For what purpose did Jesus strengthen him? It is not like how people in the, in the, and today, how so many say how Jesus strengthened them. Right? Jesus strengthened me to catch this ball. It was Jesus' strength that enabled me to make this shot or lose weight or have clear skin or get this job or, or finish this project. Jesus strengthens us for the good fight. And what is that good fight? It is to fight sin. It is to care for fellow believers. It is to proclaim the gospel. And Jesus stood by Paul to strengthen him so that the word of the gospel would go forth and the Gentiles might hear the gospel and be saved. Verse 17, The Lord stood by me so that through me the gospel might go forth and the Gentiles might hear it. And in this way, Paul says in verse 17, So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Literally the lion's mouth. Paul was inches from being devoured by the lion. And not only that, he will rescue me from every evil deed, verse 18, and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Wait a minute. This, Paul is delusional here. Verse 18 didn't happen. He died in prison. Jesus didn't rescue him. The lion devoured him. We know through church history, he died in prison. He was beheaded. He was martyred for the faith. Paul's pro prophecy didn't come true. He's delusional. No, he's not talking about his physical life. He is ready to be poured out as a drink offering. He is ready for his departure. He's not waiting for the Christian SWAT team, the Delta Force to come through and rescue him and deliver him. He is ready to die. He's talking about spiritually, his heart. The Lord stood by him and rescued him from the lion. Now, what is the lion? The lion is personified in the New Testament as the devil, as Satan himself. First Peter says, the devil prowls around as a lion, waiting to devour us. Ephesians 4, 26-27, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and thus give no opportunity to the devil. How does Satan devour us? How does Satan get, get an opportunity to take us away? It's by using sin in our hearts that responds to unfaithful Christians. And Paul is sitting there and he thinks about all the people that he led to Christ. All the people that he loved and prayed for and served and held and, and ministered to and sacrificed for. And then he remembers every single name that didn't come. When he was in need, they deserted Paul for Paul. The, 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 the devil, the lion was right there, inches from his heart, trying to devour him. From where he become a uh, bitter, resentful, angry, even deny Christ and love this world, despair of himself, become discouraged. When he considered believers being so unfaithful to him, the temptation to respond in bitterness and resentment and anger 
and hatred against them and against Christ was right there. The Lord stood by him and strengthened him, delivered him, and will continue to deliver him from, from the sin that oppresses our hearts until he brings Paul into his heavenly kingdom. All believers are vulnerable to this spiritual warfare, to Satan's temptation, where you look at fellow believers and you look at their sinfulness, a lack of obedience, a lack of faithfulness, and it prompts in you self-righteousness, anger, resentment, and bitterness. And that is what Satan is waiting for. It's an opportunity for him to get into your heart and lead you astray. But if you think you're vulnerable to that, pastors, Dan and I, we are so vulnerable to that. We wrestle with our lions at home. In our prayer closets, we wrestle with our lions. But this is where we love people, but we got to love Jesus more. We look at Christians, we got to look ultimately to Jesus. We must love fellow Christians, but we must not idolize them. We trust in people, we depend on people, we rely on people, but our ultimate trust must be in Jesus, not people. Our ultimate reliance, we must depend ultimately, first and foremost, on Jesus alone, and we have to see Him standing next to us. Standing because he is powerful, standing because he loves us, and standing as our saviors, the one who will deliver us from the lion's mouth. Paul saw Jesus, and Jesus rescued him, delivered him from his enemy. Where? He's able to end in verse 18. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. All glory be to God. Verse 22, The Lord be with your spirit. (laughs) Truly, grace be with you. May we take those words to heart. These are grace-filled exhortations that we would give all glory for our lives, that our motivation, that our passion, that our, that our purpose for our lives be God's glory, and that we would do that by grace, through grace, through trusting in Jesus as we look to Him. Just as you are, if you would bow your heads and close your eyes and ask you, are you looking to Jesus? Are you are you lost? Have you lost sight because of people that have offended you and wronged you and hurt you, discouraged you, sinned against you? And your heart is so filled with memories and thoughts of them that you've lost your way and you're at the lion's mouth. And you see how easily you can resign yourself and be led away to just anger and bitterness and resentment and an unforgiving spirit. May the words of Paul here direct you to see Jesus. He is right next to you. He is standing right next to you and he is there because he is strong. He is there because he loves you and he wants to strengthen you and deliver you if you would 
turn your eyes away from yourself and away from these people and turn your eyes to Christ and trust, rely, and believe in Him. Father, we want to see Jesus. Oh, Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Lord, break through our hard hearts. Oh, Lord, give us ears to hear this beautiful message of the gospel. And Lord, we pray you would cause us repentance deep within, where because we see our sins in such measure that instead of being angry at others, being resentful or bitter at others, we would be just confessing our sins, confessing our unfaithfulness to you. And through that same time, we will see I experience and know the love of Christ that is, that is in the gospel, in the cross, and we would be strengthened by you, strengthened by, by your presence to fight the good fight and to finish the race that you have given to us and to hold on and keep faith. We thank you, Lord, for ah, this beautiful truth ah, you have given to us through your servant, Apostle Paul. In your name we pray. Amen.